What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared. I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Jacob. Hello, hello. And Austin. Yo. This is very special because we thought Ryan was going to be on the phone today, and then 10 minutes before we start recording, he just shows up at the door. <laughs> so, everyone's so happy. Yeah, we're so happy, and I, man. And I, and I feel like I haven't seen him for, like, what, two months? It's been a while, it's yeah. Been a happy while. New Year. Happy New Year. So, man, you should do that more often. Yeah, <laughs> pop in on any time. Any time. Yeah, I wish there was more federal holidays, uh, you know, that I could do that. We could work but... on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, today, welcome back to Nick Cage Month, everybody. This is the Hell second yeah. installment of Nick Cage Month. Today, we're covering Face Off the 1997 movie directed by John Woo. Can I just say, I love how Nick Cage month doesn't actually settle in a, an actual calendar month, but it straddles too. Because no, that's like totally Nick Cage. It's eccentric months. and doing its own thing, right? Exactly. exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does whatever the you know fuck we, he wants. You know we get meta like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we have two more movies after this one for Nick Cage Month, and we decided that we're going to leave it to the patrons. So uh. if you guys go to wisecrackplus.com, you can join the Patreon, and you can cast your vote as to what Nick Cage movies you'd like to see. In the running are Adaptation, Raising Arizona. Yeah. Right, it's a little bit late. I think there's drive, actually... There might drive be... Angry, Leaving Las Vegas, Knowing... Wild at Heart, Ghost Rider, Con Air, Moonstruck, and Bad Lieutenant Portocol, New Orleans. That's wow. a long list, too. It's a long list, but good, we're though. gonna get the top two. The top two are gonna be the next two that we cover. I will not be unhappy no matter what what gets picked. Well, that's that. what happens when you're covering Nick Cage. But anyway, I haven't seen a lot of them, by the way. Uh, I had well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. To say, I have not seen a lot of them. Seen either. them all. They're all good. I contest that Matchstick Men is not in there. What? Who? What, uh, what's up with that? I forgot about that one. I didn't. Yeah, I mean, look, he's been in like seventy-five movies. So, <laughs> no, wait, Wicker so Man. you've seen Ghost Rider? Yeah. Okay, but, I have not seen yeah. that one. All right. Anyway, let's talk about Face Off. Let's go for first impressions. What was it like the first time you saw this movie? And what was it like revisiting it? Let's start with our guest that we haven't seen in two months, Ryan. Well, the first time I saw this, um, I like had a just mini teenage Ryan just movie orgasm. Like I couldn't believe what I was watching. Um, <laughs> it's, it's exactly what I want in a movie. I've, I feel like I've said that on a couple podcasts recently. But yeah, this is exactly what I want out of the movies. Just an absurd high concept situation, beautifully done and rendered with awesome John Woo slow-mo uh, photography with batshit insane acting from Nick Cage and John Travolta. Um, it really, everybody is hitting on all cylinders here. And yeah, this movie is amazing. Can't wait to talk about it. Golf clap. Okay, cool. What about you, Jacob? I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I remember loving it then. And God, I watched it on the airplane this time. What a fucking great movie! I was like, yeah, I, had, I couldn't hold myself back. I was on the uh, texting. I was like, dude, fucking John Woo's the man. This movie's awesome. The name is great. I love the double entendre with like obviously the face and a face off. The fucking action is insane. It's yes. so good. You don't yeah. get that anymore. I kept thinking about John Woo. I kept thinking about Mission Impossible Two. I I love the the high concept. is It's just perfect. It's a great movie. And then to be able to see these actors both kind of play each other. Was awesome. So you get like two performances out of each. So you get four performances. It's just, <laughs> oh, it's the best. I loved it. So yeah, it's like one of the best action movies ever, oh, especially the nineties. It's awesome. Awesome, Austin. What about you? I'm gonna throw the wet blanket on this love parade. Here. <laughs> you motherfucker! Yeah. Uh, no, oh, boom. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I mean, okay, there are a couple of good sequences. The Mexican standoff at the end. I like when they point the guns at the uh, at the mirrors, and it's like, oh, they're shooting the other, but they're really killing themselves, and there's some interesting yes. stuff there. I thought that was a cool shot. Um, and then some of the action sequences are just simply balletic, especially when they go into uh, Caster's like lair or his his apartment building. I mean, that was just a fucking crazy scene, right? Other than mm-hmm. that, like. It was so hammy, and I get it. I get it. That's the point. You got to enjoy it on that level. But, like, Vampire's Kiss, for some reason, I could deal with this kind of hamminess. But with this, dude, it just didn't do it for me. I thought the storyline was ludicrous. I don't know. Like, it, for just hey, look, piece, not every movie can be Vampire's Kiss. I know. Right, right. I know. I mean, and I know, I know, I know I should not get hung up on the science. But, like... Come on. It's, it's the science accurate, is the best man. part. 100% it's better than Inception. <laughs> More than human really, Yeah. I mean, I would actually see, I didn't better see than... the movie in 1997 or anywhere near that, but it kind of, I was like, wow, you know, people were really optimistic about science yeah, back in 97. Yeah, disbelief. If, well, I don't know. Like, no, I, I definitely remember uh, distinctly my dad and everyone uh, talking about this movie and making fun of the concept oh, okay. being yeah. like, yeah. like, this is insane and ridiculous. Yeah. It was ridiculous back then. It's ridiculous now, but it doesn't matter. Like when yeah. you're watching it, 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 everyone plays it pretty straight. You know, it's not right. played for laughs, really. I love 15 minutes into the future scientific stuff. Like I love that kind of stuff. You know, like the 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 what what is the magnetized boots and things like that like that prison i was like oh that's kind of fucking cool it kind of like just amps up the craziness of the prison system i was like that's pretty fucking cool but um i don't know man it just didn't do it for me (laughs) i'm sorry wasn't the security guard like marge's husband from fargo yeah yeah Uh, totally is or her no oh no uh well the the director of the fbi was uh Mr. Gunderson. Yeah, you had two yeah, Fargo right, actors. Yeah, but I think yeah, I think yeah. the security guard is Marge's husband, the one who's like, I want to make you some eggs. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to have a You, you got Arby's on you, Marge. Yeah. <laughs> to, to your point, though, Austin, I really love the kind of logical jumps in this movie. Me too. How they don't really address it, but you are kind of like, you know, they would totally recognize these people way before, way earlier just by little quirks in their body. There's no way the, the thing would be that perfect. The, the hair, surgery, oh, yeah, the teeth. The, the, you know, yeah, the, the teeth. surgery is perfect. The well, structure of your nose, I, your jawline, right. your, your gum line. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think that makes it fun. Your breath. I don't know. For me, it's all about the moment in history that the way that people feel about technology of whether or not you would buy that or not. Because, you know, you see all those machines, the computers that all look very state-of-the-art, high-tech for the time. And I don't know if it was – depending on the level of exponential technological growth that this movie came out in, which was 97. Once again, I, I saw this movie for the first time last night. So <laughs> oh, um, I was wondering in my head, I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe like, you know, in the past two years, computers had just exponentially gotten better to such a degree that – People might actually believe that this might be a thing in a couple of years, but you're probably right. It's probably ridiculous then and ridiculous. Well, now. It would be ridiculous now, no matter what. Yeah, of course. So yeah. what did you think of the movie? Your first viewing. It was viewing. awesome. It was my first Hell viewing. Yeah. Uh, the only, the years only thing I will say is I don't remember, first of all, I don't remember why we picked this movie. I think Ryan was like, face off. So I was, <laughs> was like, it you? Right, yeah. I, I, I was yeah. Jared. If we're going to do Nick Cage month, we got to do fucking But it's off. like Nick Cage is only doing the Nick Cage for the first like 20 minutes. Which, is, yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because that's another great thing about the form and amazing acting of this movie is that is, is – Nicolas Cage is playing a fucking sociopath, but he only gets the opening credit sequence to really cement, you know, that part. Him, Nick Cage's 
Caster Troy being Caster Troy, and then from then on, it's John Travolta being Caster Troy. Yeah. So he has to play it totally different. But that that opening sequence with the choir boy and him grabbing <laughs> her ass, it's like, <laughs> dude, you. It, uh, uh, it's amazing, uh, um, like like the, that how face. that's the foundation for the character. Yeah, that face. You really are like, yeah, this guy's crazy. Yes. Um, and then there's this amazing uh, uh, commentary track that Nick Cage talks about. You know, uh, whenever they filmed that scene first, so that was the first scene that they filmed. And then John Travolta was, was over there watching, and he was like, <laughs> "Wow, so that's the kind of acting we're going to be doing." Because he had to basically right. be him yeah, for the rest yeah, of the movie. Exactly. He's like, "Fuck, I got to do that." <laughs> you know, yeah. like, so that's what Nick Cage is responsible for a lot of this movie. Batch yeah, you imagine like whatever well, you energy gotta keep, he puts you gotta in. keep them stakes high. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whatever energy he put into that role, you had to have emulated by Travolta, which would have been it would have been crazy. Both of them had to really like, observe each other to see like how are you, uh-huh. how are you with your wife, and how would you be in this situation? And man, I didn't know this was a body swap film. And, Best you know, body swap like, film ever. Better than eighteen again. Better than thirteen, 13 going, going on, on 30. thirty. Better than Freaky Friday. Better than Get Out. <laughs> what was the one? Yeah, I, I think so. What was the one with? Um, Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman. Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, the There's a, there were, the voices. They, no, it's where they do the, the they do the Freaky Friday thir- thing, yeah. but they do it with the two dudes, and Ryan Reynolds oh. is like a. a it was a I mean, the movie and, did not. It came out like oh, five years yeah, ago or something. Like, like the double. Anyway. Was it called? No, not the double. That was the Jesse Eisenberg film. The I know what Deuce? you're talking about. The Switch or something. I don't know. Like that. Anyway, the Switch. I think that, that movie was is it. pretty impressive. I mean, it's not as good as this one. Oh, someone recommended Eight Millimeter, another good movie. Oh shit! I haven't seen that one either. Yeah. yeah point is, I like this movie a lot. I'm a. You know, it's weird because I uh, love love John Woo, and I'm more familiar with his movies in Hong Kong than I were in his ones in America. And the yeah. first thing that caught me was the fact that. Nicolas Cage in that first scene when he gets out of his car and like his trench coat is billowing in the wind and he's got those two ornate guns. I mean, he's basically Chow Yun Fat from a from a better tomorrow. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. And that's kind of the lens through which I ultimately analyze this movie. And what we'll talk about is kind of how this movie is an interesting departure from John Woo's Hong Kong movies and even the first two movies he made in America. Because before this, there was Broken Arrow. A failure, and what was the other one? Um, payback, but that was later. Oh, I don't know. Was it not you know, Wind Talkers? Was that? Oh yeah, he did Wind Talkers. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. True. Anyway, I really like this movie. Um, I like the. I love all John Woo action movies. It was cool to see a version of the killer and hard boiled and uh, bullet in the head. Yeah, with. Two American actors, two American actors that I like a lot. By the way, so. yeah, if you're listening to this, you don't know John Woo. Those are the movies you should go check out: Bull in the Head, The Killer, uh, Hard Boiled, and A Better Tomorrow. Better tomorrow and I think there are some off. A Better Tomorrow sequels, which I haven't seen all of them, and they're not as good as the first one. And then Mission Impossible Two, yeah, I think so is good. awesome, but that, yeah, yeah, that's him in America. Yeah, and then uh, the Red Cliff movies are pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Don't see the one, the theatrical one that's condensed into one movie. See the the foreign ones that are two two hour movies. Anyway, let's go into a recap. So, yes. terrorist Caster Troy shoots FBI officer Sean Archer on a carousel, accidentally killing his young son in the process. Six years later, Sean catches and puts Caster in a coma during his attempt to blow up L.A. But his bomb is still out there, and his plan's still in motion. Caster's brother, also in custody, will only speak to Caster about the bomb, so Sean undergoes an experimental procedure to implant Caster's face onto his. With six days until the bomb explodes, Sean infiltrates the prison as Caster and learns the bomb is at the L.A. Convention Center. 
Meanwhile, the real caster wakes up and makes the doctor put Sean's face on his, turning this into a veritable body swap film. Caster as Sean gets his brother out of jail and defuses the bomb to soak up the glory. He then has sex with Sean's wife and puts his plan into motion to cripple all other terrorist groups, leaving his crew to be the only big dogs in town. All the while, Sean as Caster rots away in jail. Sean as Caster escapes from jail, teams up with Caster's old crew where he learns that Caster has a son that he has all but abandoned. Caster as Sean and the SWAT team start shooting up the place, leading to a face-off uh, between hey. Caster and Sean. Caster's brother dies, and Caster as Sean kills the director of the FBI. Sean as Caster convinces his wife who he really is, and at the director's funeral, a five-way Mexican standoff leads to an epic boat chase where Sean kills Caster, and the FBI recognizes him as Sean again. The top surgical team in the country comes in and gives Sean his face back, and the Archer family adopts Caster's orphan child. End of movie. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. So this movie was uh, pretty successful. This made this movie made a hundred million dollars in six weeks, which in, is in 1996 money. In 1996 wow. money. That's like 97. This is Titanic. 97 money. Titanic year. Um, and it's got like a 92 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which means that I mean, not that we should take that aggregator as being some sort of like absolute barometer for good films, but at least you know it got some critical love. The people like it. Well, it, it's funny because, you know, you're talking about it kind of being a little hammy and cheesy. I mean, I'll admit, as a lover of this movie, yeah, like compared to other things, it is a little hammy and cheesy, but everyone likes it. And that's what is great about it. Is it transcends its, it wears its hamminess as a badge of honor. And, I just put my and, critical mind on the hanger and was like, let me just enjoy it. Let me oh, I didn't. I was like, you were analyzing those every, doves, baby. Those do oh, what do they mean? I was saying to the John Woo doves. I think there's doves in Mission Impossible too. Oh, there's doves sure. in all his movies. Doves in all his movies, right? It means it's a metaphor for how important the movie is. Yes. I couldn't help but look at this into the f context of Hong Kong cinema. And the thing you'll always hear from academics that talk about Hong Kong cinema is that Hong Kong cinema is always, especially in the '90s when it was big, when it was like basically became a big thing. It's all about expressing this anxiety about. Um, Hong Kong being taken over by China again in 1997. Like, they're mm. pretty much all Hong Kong movies are analyzed under in that frame. And this movie doesn't really deal with that, but uh, there are still some pretty interesting things uh, that we can talk about in a sec. But in a sec, Freudian slip. Wow. But first, <laughs> let's talk about uh, some of the very obvious things that are going on in this movie, but worth bringing up anyway. Let's talk about faces. So one of the interesting things uh, that happens is that his daughter, Jamie, is constantly changing the way that she looks and acts every week. So she says, I'm supposed to be me. Not that you would have a clue about that anyway. And then later, when um, Caster as Sean says to her, you haven't been the same since Michael died, hiding behind other faces to avoid how you feel. And then I guess, I guess what we're supposed to take away from this is that, ironically... Only by putting on another face can Sean move past the death of his son, as evidenced by him not needing the bullet wound scar anymore at the end. You know, he tells the plastic surgeon at the beginning that I'd like for you to keep the scar there as a reminder of my dead son and I guess how I let it burden my life and I am so torn up by the regret. 
And then at the end, he says, you know what? You can leave that off. And then he adopts the kid. And then there's that thing he does where he wipes his hand from the top of the face down. He does that before his son is shot. He does it to his wife after he catches Castor. Uh, I don't Beautiful. really have anything profound to say about this other than they knew the title of the movie and they wanted to nail it home. I'm sorry. Jim Carrey's the mask that ta- tackles this thing a lot better and a little more interesting. What? <laughs> hey, that's a good movie. That is a good movie. That's a great movie. I'm not going to talk shit about Smoke the mask, it. even though even should, though Austin doesn't like this we movie. We should cover the mask on this I remember there's that psychologist the in the mask that's all like, we all wear masks. And yeah, I, it's, it's Ben Stein. Yeah, exactly. There, there, there's something yeah. going on here, too. Like in ancient Greece, the idea of a, I think it was prosopon is the Greek word, which basically means mask. And it's what actors used to wear over their face. And it was this idea that there's something about the performance and being a new person. And um, there's a lot of literature that engages with this idea of wearing a mask as, as this thing that is like the signal identity marker of a person of a body right and if you could somehow live in another mask then that sort of disrupts who you are and what you are and that's why i thought the bit where they're like shooting into the mirror was for me that was kind of like the coolest part because i was like oh that's kind of fun yeah like just beyond the fact that again mexican standoffs all over in this movie but um i just thought it was really kind of cool at like a thematic and conceptual level as well you know i actually thought they were going to go a little bit deeper with it there's a part in the jail when Sean as Caster starts beating the shit out of that guy who starts attacking him because apparently he had slept with his wife and daughter or sister, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he starts, I think, losing himself a little bit. Like he's like, oh, I don't actually want to become Caster. Mm-hmm. And I and, and but it never really develops beyond that moment. I really was hoping he would struggle more with, oh my God, I'm actually becoming my worst enemy because mm-hmm. I have his face on. But you know, he doesn't really uh, get seduced by Gina Gershon. You know, none of this, none of, he's able, able to keep pretty well in control, you know? Hmm. Which I, I, I like because it's, it's more about the struggle between, you know, him being a family man having to put on this act of being a, a psychopath, you know? So, yeah, there's that, that, that one moment of pause in the jail when he's just like, he's like going for it and then he's like, oh shit. But yeah, that could have been a cool exploration. I I can see that. Yeah, it, I, but just sort of yeah, it just sort of stops there. Kind of like introduces that one time, and then he doesn't. I mean, there are a lot of people dying. I mean, he is shooting down a lot of people. He's like mowing people down. He has that one pause with the SWAT guy. He's like, oh hey Billy or whatever the guy's name is. Yeah 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 yeah. But I, he I, never gets seduced by Caster's life. Which, no. I mean, maybe it's that's just not not the movie. You know, it's this is much more of a good versus evil movie, and they never really. Explore the shades of gray, which is fine. He has to do drugs with that guy, but he just but does he it does to, it to fit in. I think just no, he has to, right? I thought someone spiked his drink. No, 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 no. He he knew he was about to take a drug. He was like the guy popped the pill in front of him, and he's like, oh, I didn't oh, know, I didn't know he if he saw it. it or not. No, he saw it. He knew he was doing. I think um, I think also, the film does address some grace, some grayness, though, doesn't it? Because because like when Castor is Sean, he kind of does some good stuff for the family. Ooh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. You know? So there is kind of some, like, even this fucking global terrorist who's a, an asshole. Like, he kind of helps the daughter and he sort of rekindles. He does help her out. He totally, right? Yeah. And he he totally, he kind of, like, rekindles some passion with the wife, even though I guess technically he. Is that rape? 
Fuck. That is that, that is some sort of weird sexual. I don't know what the fuck's going on there. I'm confused now. But it's advanced seduction techniques. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not torture. Sexual. I mean, he gets a lobster and all of these candles. If that's not oh. adva- There is a story, you know, he gets the lobster, but isn't she like a vegetarian? Cuz later on he's saying like oh, and there right, was that right, he tells right. a story like there was this one girl and she was a vegetarian despite that's right. me. That's right. You later so. like that you later find that out. She yeah. doesn't say it during the meal though. No, she would be like what the fuck is this lobster? for <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 also shout out to the actor who plays castor troy's brother i think that oh, that he was good awesome oh nicolo yeah. alessandro Nic- nicolo or something like that yeah i like Maybe. him a lot and i was saying what happened to joan allen too because we saw her in pleasantville that year probably 96 or 97 and, and then she she's in the born them. identity she's in one of the born films yeah i haven't seen her in a long time yeah so I did a little bit of research about uh, this movie because I was like, you know, it's not the deepest movie in the world. And we're supposed to show people the what? meaning, goddammit. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I found this uh, essay by a guy named Robert Hankey called uh, John Woo's Cinema of Hyperkinetic Violence. So I'm going to be uh, citing from him. And he brings up a good point about John Woo's films before this. And so uh, he is calling... Well, this is what he talks about, but I am dubbing what he talks about, the Wooian bromance. So... Um, in films like A Better Tomorrow and Hard Boiled, these are John Woo's films in Hong Kong, there's kind of this masochistic bromance among equals, and there's like this nostalgia for this gone sense of honor. These are essentially like male melodramas. Mm. So it's oftentimes a cop and a criminal, and regardless of the fact that they hate each other or that they're diametric opposites, there's like this this sense of identification between the two of them. There's this sense of intimacy. And uh, it's kind of like if you've ever seen Heat, you know, that last part of Heat where uh, De Niro and Pacino are like holding hands because they both go through the same pain. That's kind of what we see in all the cop versus gangster movies of John Woo's Hong Kong cinema before this. And it's interesting that in this movie that doesn't happen. The only thing that you could really say is that is intimate between Troy and Archer is that they're both fathers. But I find it really interesting that the terrorist in this case, Castor, is like just unilaterally evil. And the movie even frames the whole discussion as like a, mm-hmm. a all-time battle between good and evil with all that uh, religious iconography or the fact that the Mexican standoff happens in a church and stuff like that. So I found that to be pretty interesting. Mm. But you don't you don't think that maybe that they need each other though that there's some sort of like connective like yeah it's dialogue. like Batman and Joker yeah exactly I mean kinda. like the law wouldn't be the law without transgression of the law and vice versa transgression of the law wouldn't be a transgression if it didn't have a law to transgress right so you've got this terrorist who wouldn't really have an identity were he not kind of counterpoised against the foil of Sean Archer and vice versa. Yeah, no, I think that there's definitely something to that, and I actually want to talk a little bit more about that, because it does seem to suggest that Sean not only he, – he's able to find some sort of epiphany in things that he has to change about his home life or just him as a man that he's only able to get by either being Caster or by Caster changing something in his home. But I guess the, the distinction I'm trying to draw here is like – when you have two people with their guns pointed at each other's head, which is like the poster for a lot of John Woo movies in Hong Kong, it's usually like two guys who have the same struggle and they're all just products of their environment. And just because of the the way that society is, they've just been thrown into this situation where they have to fight and kill each other, mm-hmm. but they still hold on to this common sense of honor. This one is way more like nihilistic 
popcorn movie mm-hmm. version of his. Well, Caster Troy is definitely the nihilist, which is interesting because yeah. he's. Jacob, like said, he's a pure definition of evil. Like there's nothing. Yeah. There's no motivation that that you can kind of reason with. Just money and women, drugs. You know, good time, the, the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you yeah, say, so, saying, so in a way, though, oh. that's interesting. So then he's like pure instinct, and Travolta is like manicured, I have to, or Sean Archer, I should he's say. He's pure like, good, you know, in a Yeah, way. Like, like, like I have to follow the law, angelic. and I'm upholding this higher standard. And so it's almost like you get this this commentary on human nature versus society. Like maybe maybe caster is what you are when you don't have the law, and you need the law. But you can't have too much of the law because then you become a stiff and – you forget about like how to connect with people at another level, like his daughter and his wife and stuff like that. I mean, obviously, there's a connection going on because they have to inhabit each other's identities in their bodies, and they so know I each think other. This so is almost kind of like too. a development of what John Woo was doing in Hong Kong. I'm having a hard time putting it into words, well, but there does of, seem to be something, something changing. They both experience like this emotional connection when they're exchanged. Like they start to they understand each other better once they're exchanged. So, so you have Caster in the home. He does eventually defend the daughter. He is a little more intimate. Like he has some moments of sensitivity. Does, and obviously, obviously, Sean's already kind of he's pretty sensitive already. But then he's able to hang out with Gina Gershon and have like this emotional connection with this. Hey, these are friends. He actually cares right. about that dude. Because before he was saying that, oh, I'm going to like put your kid in a foster home yeah. if you don't cooperate. I'm going to destroy and then you. And at the end he realizes, oh no, like. I'll take you know, care of you forever. Exactly. Yeah. Or you'll never have to have a problem again. Do you think that when Castor goes to the grave of the son that he killed, does he actually, I had a hard time telling, does he actually feel a little bit of remorse? It was, it was not painted to make you feel that way. Like it, it didn't, it didn't seem like he, he seemed pretty cold. I mean, he yeah. he was there for her, but it was clearly a gesture. Yeah. It didn't seem like he was like, oh, no, fuck, I, I, I fucked I, it up. I, yeah. But he did say, hey, I, look, it was an accident, man. He did say at one point, he tells him, he's like, hey, I was trying to kill you. Your kid was just an accident. I had no, I wasn't planning to. So there's a little bit of like a glimpse of remorse. But then he does say like, I hope you, he does something like to really stab at him, like, hope you enjoy that your kid's gone or hope you're, doesn't he say something nasty to Sean? That's one of that's one of the, during an interrogation. One of his like hoodlums or something says like, "How's your dead kid?" Oh, that one. That's like what that. it is. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Okay, that's what it is. How's so, your what, what do you think? You think Ryan? You think that does Caster Troy undergo any changes when he is Sean? Yeah, I feel like oh, his brother. When his brother dies, I mean, you see a little bit of, but that's already it's always been there. I guess that warmth for him. I, I think that you know he's he's clearly like having fun with. Uh, uh, being Sean Archer, and the so so to me, you know, when he's helping the daughter out, when he's helping, it, it, it's actually not like, you know, you're not supposed to say, oh wow, he's really giving her great advice. Like it's 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 like fucked up advice to to give a, a, a high school or a butterfly knife and say just dig it into the wound so it won't open, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of you're also like, well, it, it is helping her protect him. <laughs> you know, or her, but herself. I mean, how cathartic but, is that moment when he beats the oh, shit out yeah. of the boyfriend? Oh yeah, it's awesome. You know, so I feel like yeah, he's just pure. Whatever's in front of him, you know, he's. You know, he's going to do what he wants to do. And, yeah, I don't think that uh, – to to me, I think the funeral scene as as the ultimate, like, like – middle finger to to the Troys or to Castor Troy because he's like he's putting on the grief but really you know he doesn't give a fuck about any consequences or collateral damage to his mm. selfish acts 
You yeah. know, I, I feel like at the end, and then at the very, very end, the ultimate fuck you is he's about to die. He literally says, "Hey, let's just kill each other. Fuck it." You know, he's that nihilistic when he when they mm-hmm. when he shoots at the mirror, like, and then uh, and then he's like, "Well, I'm gonna die, but just to fuck you over, I'm gonna take a knife and fuck your face up." Yeah, you know, it doesn't end up doing anything anyway. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but still, it's just kind of like. You know he's he's only doing it out of spite because he's a dick. You know he I don't feel like he he's the personification of evil. He doesn't yeah grow it, grow it all. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know. We but, also got Margaret Cho in the movie too. Did you guys catch that? I did. Yeah, yeah. she's great. Yeah, she was good. I saw her name in the credits. I was like, whoa! I didn't even realize she <laughs> it's was such a crazy cast. CCH Pounder is in it. It's like who? The, uh, Thomas Jane is in it. Like oh yeah, the fuck. He's awesome. The whole police <laughs> squad's really good. You, I believe them. Yeah, across the board. It's a great movie. You know, another thing I found interesting is that the stakes of the movie, at least for the bulk of the movie, are not some kind of existential threat because the bomb is diffused in the middle of the second act. Mm -hmm. I found that to be pretty interesting. What's more at stake seems to be his family life because it's like vaguely hinted at that Caster is, what is he? He's going to use the counterterrorism resources to put all of his competitors out of business. I don't feel like that. That's like a throwaway line toward it just becomes, the end of, but right before the showdown, what we really care about is how he's affecting the family. Well, and it, that, and it's just a pure revenge movie at that point. Like at that point, the, the, when he said I got him to his wife earlier, the assumption was that he was dead. He didn't realize he was in a coma. He's still alive, and not only that, he's also so he defused the bomb, but now he's escaped and he's at large, and it's now just a revenge movie. Now yeah. it's just like I just want this. I want to see this guy done. Hmm. Right, I mean, he just he ultimately he just wants to kill this guy. Well, you're talking about uh, Sean. Sean wants to kill Castor. Well, he also wants to get his family back. I mean, this guy. Oh yeah, of course. Th- those are yes. Those are the stakes. Is that this yeah. guy's? Well, he's also manipulating the FBI and he's killing people there and he's taking advantage of the of the role. We don't really see him. I mean, I guess he does take advantage of the role, but I guess well, he's putting it's like no longer that Troy is trying to harm a large population of people, which is usually the case in like terrorist versus counter-terrorist right. scenarios. Well, but now he's, he's changing his strategy because now he realizes that he's got the inside beat. And so he arranges for his brother to kind of get all of these these like good food and, and whatever else, these like nice material comforts and rather than being in that maximum security prison. And he's going to, like for me, it was a lot more of the unsaid. Like I just assumed once Caster has Sean Archer's face, he's able to go in and that you can kind of see he's kind of like, okay, I'm in here now and I'm going to start doing stuff that is totally for my benefit. And I mean, maybe he doesn't really just want to see the world burn, but maybe he's just down to make a shitload of money and have power. And he realizes that now he's got quote unquote state power that he's able to kind of use those resources and do that. He's a lazy joker. Yeah, and he's able to put the SWAT team, like when he's playing Sean, when Caster's playing Sean, he's able to put like the, all these SWAT teams and all of these police forces in at risk just for his own, like at his own whims. Like now he's got an army that he can just kind of put put out and they're all they all get they all get massacred he's got the over power. and over again. he's got the power <laughs> yeah I, I guess i'm saying that even if but the, fine the terrorist gets he infiltrates the fbi he has all these resources to him as a screenwriter you'd probably say okay now we up the stakes even more now he's going to blow up the whole planet or yeah, something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that yeah. you know that, that's usually where the quote face-off leads but instead you know that mexican standoff is basically just like a standoff between a bunch of mothers and and like girlfriends and and Dudes, like it's much more family oriented, which I found to be interesting. It's a family film. It, it literally is a family film. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a it's a counter terrorism movie, mostly about family. 
Yeah, I love that genre. Do we ever see why he's a terrorist, though? Like, is it for money? No. Like, how come he has such a badass penthouse? So clearly there's some sort of mon- monetary incentive. No? There was that weird thing when Sean was in jail and he said something about, like, oh, man, fuck about that $11 million, right? What What was that about? You know what we're talking about? Oh, the brothers saying there was, I think for building, they built the bomb and there was a deal where they had to get paid $10 million to build it or to engineer it or to install it. So okay. there's some, they're in cahoots with someone else. There's, there's a money arrangement involved. Oh, okay. And they said now that it's been diffused and that we're in jail, we're not going to get paid for whatever. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. that's what it was. So there are, there yeah. is a sense in which there's a pyramid of power and that he's not quite at the top, right? That somehow, somewhere globally in this, non-specified terrorist or he's network. a freelance he's a freelance terrorist I mean, yeah so you're saying there's someone who's like the boss yeah he's or, a con- he's a contractor he's a contract <laughs> <laughs> he's a government contract <laughs> yeah and so but somebody's more, more, foot in the bill and so because that was my thing like no one except for the joker it, like, and like very rare other other characters right it's very rare that you find an enemy that just simply wants to watch the world burn usually it's they want to do it for money they want to do it for power they want to do it for the the kingdom or they want to do it for their people or something right there's always some sort of motivation they don't really explain it much but i kind of just assumed it was like money and power and chicks and sex and stuff like that because of his lifestyle being quite lavish yeah well it's also important to mention that he does care about his brother yeah as i say that that's yeah. the part that's where you really see the heart of caster Right, his brother dies. He's devastated. I think I don't know. If he, I think he does kind of cry or he's teary eyed. He doesn't. He cross. He ties his shoe, which is like a really sweet yeah, little kind of sweet. Cute thing. He fed him his pill every day, the Vivex or whatever it was called. Yeah. You know, when I was doing research on this movie, I it was so funny reading these old articles about how John Woo was this controversial filmmaker and how this movie was heavily criticized for glorifying violence and that <laughs> films like this are often targets such criticism. I find this funny because it feels like this is kind of no longer an issue. Like yeah, pe- people, no one gives a fuck. People may <laughs> react strongly to gore these days, but in terms of action violence, it seems like people are just like, all right, well, in as much as there are Hollywood movies now, there has to be violence similar to this because this movie isn't even gory. There's maybe gunshots or something, but I don't really see how this is any more violent than your average Marvel movie, and nobody is complaining about those being too violent. We've it's become pretty violent, pretty violent. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the just sprays of gunfire, people just, you know, lots of people get murdered in this movie. I mean, then the slow-mo really accentuates the violence. And... It's like this... Oh, that's true. It feels like the Matrix fight scenes, like the Matrix scenes when they're, like, flipping and doing the machine gun oh, yeah. action, but it's like that for close to... An hour and a half. I mean, the, the Wachowskis movie. were heavily influenced by John Woo. Yeah, I mean, they loved John. Woo. I was saying to Jared earlier today that that also the part where Caster wakes up and he's like he has no face. He just and he's like clapping, <laughs> right. and then he's like staring into his reflection, or you see his reflection in something. Mm-hmm. I was like, that. Do you think Heath Ledger like got inspired for the Joker through that performance because he's like clapping his hands <laughs> like the Joker, and then you just see like the smile. I don't know. <laughs> I would love to think so. I would love to think there's some Nicholas Cage, Cage in, the, in, in the Dark Knight. In, in the Dark Knight, yeah. Yeah, the the whole thing with the slow motion, I guess I can I I can see how that's a distinction, but I it's like violence. The reason why there were I guess so many violent movies back then. I mean, there's still I still contend that there still are today, but that's because the only thing violence lets movies travel well. Well, you but know, like viol- violence is so common now. Game of Thrones, yeah. Spartacus, fuck, even like the TV show Fargo. It's everywhere now. Before it was like a thing that was in a small pocket of cinema. Right. You had 
you had certain directors or certain filmmakers that were known. I mean, Sam Peckinpah is the one that I think of that like really was maybe yeah. like one of the early guys that really got shit for the the radical violence that he displayed in his westerns, right? And then obviously Tarantino uh, became the poster child for exaggerated violence. But now it is ubiquitous. It's well, everywhere. I, I, actually, it's really interesting that you brought Sam Peckinpah because I think he's the perfect. Uh, uh, counter guy to john woo like like or from the earlier generation like they're v- v- they both have very very cinematic uh s- cinematically shot violent acts in, in their films and, the, and and they're in slow motion you know mm, like yeah. it's literally the same thing so i think it's just the fact that he composes his his violence to to be extra you know crazy that 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 it just comes off like all right he's really into this you can feel it you yeah know? see for me the yeah. difference between peck and paw and woo is that peck and paw and i used the word earlier balletic there is a dance there's an or there's an yeah. orchestration mm-hmm. to it that peck and paw doesn't have peck and paw is more of like naked brute the brutality of violence so when he does a slow motion or when he it's does poetic. a crash zoom it's much more visceral whereas i felt like for me it actually was it was distilled a little bit because of the stylistic nature of the explosions and the fireworks. I mean, clearly when the airplane is crashing into that hangar, there are fireworks going off. That's not really yeah, what it so looks pew. like when a big fucking vehicle crashes into a door. So for me, it was much more spectacular in the literal sense, like a spectacle than other forms of violence. So I actually didn't think the violence for me, and maybe it's because I'm just a fucking desensitized motherfucker now, but it wasn't that kind of like horrific in this film. It, it, I wouldn't call it horrific. It was more just, yeah, like you're saying, operatic. I also think that... Uh, and gratuitous. Uh, 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 I mean, the yeah. boats flipping around in the air. I mean, it was like, wow. Uh, it's huge action sequences, but in, but violent. I mean, uh, another nonstop. element that, that lends to that, I think, uh, is the score. You know, it's this heavy, like, cathedral-like uh, hmm. operatic score it, it, it that makes like, it feel, like, intense, you know. Was it Man? Was it Mancia? Or what's the guy who did the speed soundtrack? Like, it sounded like that kind of intense... I yeah. don't know, but it's action music. Oh, oh. Like choirs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, choir. It was good. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. So uh, more to Austin's point. So in, in an interview, John Woo said, uh, speaking about his slow motion gunfight sequences, he says, in those sequences, I was very impl- influenced by musicals like Singing in the Rain and West Side Story and dancers like Fred Astaire and Gene yeah. Kelly. They have a rhythm of life, and I shoot action scenes just as if they were dance sequences. A hundred percent. Like for me, and I know that I'm probably just being fucking white boy trying to uh, synthesize uh, any Asian person. But I was thinking of like Jackie Chan and like Rumble in the Bronx and how it's kind of like, you know, this this sort of Buster Keaton stereo uh, uh, choreographed sort of thing. Like for me, that's what I was thinking of when I watched this. Whereas when I think of a Tarantino type or even a Pan, uh, Peckinpah type, I don't think of them in terms of trying to to create choreography as much. Even though I think, I think uh, Tarantino's like car scene in... Uh, is it death proof or the other one um where yeah like that is kind of you know extremely stylistic but nevertheless it doesn't quite have that like that 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 balletic like the choreography of this huge cast coming together and weaving these different dance moves together whereas you do get that and i wonder if it's uh in in like a characteristic of asian cinema versus maybe a more american or european cinema well the thing about john woo is that he is kind of like the big Chinese anomaly in that, yeah, he made a big splash in Chinese cinema, but that was because he was more influenced by Western directors than he was Chinese directors. So he cites people like Scorsese and Penn, Jean-Pierre Melville, Bergman, Bertolucci, and 
of course, Kurosawa. No, that's an Eastern director. But when he made his first films for Golden Harvest, which is the Hong Kong Chinese production company that made all those initial really popular movies of the 80s, he researched uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's Les Samurai and Clouzot's The Wages of Fear, which I found to be pretty interesting. And it's funny how in his career now, you know, he had his time in Hollywood and then he went back to China. And now he's like really a national icon uh, and he makes movies that are like, you know, uh, lionize Chinese myths and stuff like that. Hmm. That's kind of cool. You see, I'm not as familiar with his uh, earlier Hong Kong cinema. It makes me really oh, want to go watch back. Oh, you got to watch it. Yeah? Uh, have you not seen Hard Boiled? God, I, I know I have seen a couple of them just, you know, on like on it's TV amazing, when I was dude. younger with buddies, but I don't even remember what they were. I just remember like I had friends that were big cinephiles when I was younger and were watching them, and I don't remember what they were. Um, but but yeah, Austin, if you watch his earlier stuff, I feel like you'll 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 totally see like oh, you know, this all comes into play and face off. Like the, the style is the exact same kind of. Yeah, you know, yeah. he really translates. Uh, it makes face off make more sense if you see the earlier ones. I feel yeah, like. that's there's certain films that you can watch in a vacuum. You know, like if you just sit down and watch the spectacular now, you don't need to know about. James Ponsoldt's filmography and stuff like that. You can kind of just enjoy that movie, right? What a weird reference. I know. It just popped into my head. Um, but, like, but like, you can just watch that film as a one-off. Whereas I sure. feel like you can with Face Off. You can just watch it. But I feel like you learn so much more. It's so much richer if you have a little bit of knowledge of the backstory. And I actually – I felt that when I was watching it. I felt – because I've seen Broken Arrow. And so I've seen uh, – and I've seen Wind Talkers. But I've never seen – uh, that I can consciously remember, at least, that I can recall any of his Hong Kong films. So it makes me feel like it would really flesh out a lot of those gaps in my in my appreciation of this film had I been able to contextualize it better. Yeah, and, and Broken Arrow also has John Travolta, and also, right. but it all, it's kind of not that good. Um, has some good effects in it. But Jared, correct me if I'm wrong. Does John Woo not speak that much English? Like, like is he no, one of those directors know. that has to have a translator, which? To me, it always just blows my mind how you could do that. I think he's he's from the mainland, and I think during the time when he grew up, they weren't teaching a lot of English. So I don't know. If anyone knows out there, let us know in the chat. And uh, yeah, but uh, but yeah, because you, you're working with just such pros. But at the same time, yeah, like every little performance would matter if you got the intonations wrong and stuff. In, in terms of being an international director without the language, I would I would actually love on this podcast if we did like uh some hong kong cinema movies i mean you look at chow yun fat in like the early 80s doing a better i think it was like 1984 he did a better tomorrow which is to me it's it, it was weird seeing nicholas cage with two ornate guns and a flowing trench coat because i was that whole aesthetic was developed in hong kong it's weird seeing a white guy with that because you know john woo hammed it up all throughout the 80s and then wong kar wai made it like a art house aesthetic in the 90s mm -hmm. with like fallen angels and stuff and so then now to see nick cage doing it i was like okay this is a little bit awkward but hey and you i kind of dig it all. i'll see nick cage do pretty much anything and the matrix with the trench coat man the trench coat but that was like they there was a different it, version it was of like it. the cyberpunk version yes. this was like the same thing which kind of made it a the bit gold guns and all yeah, that yeah 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 hmm. um because we don't really have gangsters like that you know the triads are much more believable. Or maybe that's only because I know nothing about China. You know, maybe I just am willing to believe that Chinese gangsters are more like that and our gangsters are not. <laughs> yeah. hmm. Anyway, guys, do you have anything else you want to talk about before we go into the mailbag? 
No, I don't have. I didn't have much. I didn't come into this into this podcast with much to say except for I love it, and uh, it's been interesting. I think you showed me some meaning with John Woo. That's cool. <laughs> I mean, I guess if we're if this I, is Nick Cage month, where do we think this film stacks up in his filmography? Is it a middle of the road or is oof. it up towards the, the upper tier? I mean, that those first twenty minutes I think are pretty important for establishing the character. And I think he did a great job. I mean, we talk about his nihilism and stuff, and I love his lines like, well, you better pull the trigger, because I don't give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And his whole thing with uh, getting the flight attendant to suck his tongue. uh, Yeah, I mean. And apparently that's a thing, because Gina Gershon mentions that later, too. So, Right, he he does it regularly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have we all gone around and said our favorite Nick Cage movies? I mean, has that been? Well, is I that would. Do we say that for the end or the end of the month? The end of the month. I mean, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and spoil my mine right now. Is yeah, one of them I jump up, but mine is Vampire's Kiss. I mean, that's like, your that movie, number one. That, that movie really is very special to me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this last podcast. If I just got five people to watch Vampire's Kiss for the first time, and we I all feel like loved I'll, I'll, I'll have done something great. That's like my brother with his vegan food company. It's like, I just want to make the whole world vegan? You want to make the whole world <laughs> Vampire's Kiss I want, I want lovers. Vampire's Kiss to have a reawakening. It'll happen. Uh, what I'm about you, at, Ryan? I'm looking at his filmography right now. I mean, because this I is certainly up there. He's huge. I haven't seen uh, I'm gonna. I'm going to tell you that my top... Damn, he's in so many good movies. My my top three, I believe. How do you even rank adaptation against something like adaptation Vampire's is, Kiss? Right, you just do. Uh, I think my <laughs> top three are are adaptation, Wild at Heart, and Face Off. Wild at oh, Heart. See, I forget that you are a big Wild at Heart lover. I love that movie. Yeah, I oh, am Mandy. excited to see it again. <laughs> For Mandy. me, it's, I just forgot. I was like, Mandy's up there. I love it, but that's very new. And, and I actually, I gotta put I gotta man. put Bad Lieutenant Portocol on there. Thank wow. you. I mean, I just made Alec watch it, and he did not like it. And Jacob doesn't like it. I'm like, what the fuck the is wrong with wrong these with people? You? I know. Yeah. All right. Okay, real quick, I just want to say to sum up face off, can we say to kind of correct an old famous idiom, before you judge a man, walk a mile in his face. Yes. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) But but having said that, I don't feel like either well, no, we already already covered that. Never mind. You're right. We are the real Brady Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg. And uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of the Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why the Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are the real Brady Brady Bros. All right, into the mailbag. Let's start out with some voicemails. Ryan, what do you got for us? Oh, before you do that, I want to remind you, if you guys want to leave us any comments, ideas, jokes, analyses, whatever you want, 213-534-8807. Or? Or what? Two one, or what, what's the? What, oh, oh, oh. Elf gut. Two, two one, one elf gut oh seven. It, it's all, someone else said uh, it, elf hut. It is, it's also elf hut, oh, which elf makes hut. way more sense. It sounds like than pizza elf hut, gut. which I like. Why, why? I mean, elves have guts and elves can because have it's huts. Just elf gut. I'm every like, elf has a gut. I don't know if every elf has a hut. That's true. But it, it's like pizza hut, elf hut. I feel like elves living in a hut makes more sense than elf gut. So it's two one <laughs> elf gut oh seven. Yeah, well, I'm working on that. But is it, whatever, leave us a voicemail, <laughs> or you can send us an email at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies right, at wisecrack.co. Ryan? Someone named Tony. Let's hear it. Tony? 
Hi, Wisecrack. Tony from Northern California here. I'm calling about your Big Lebowski podcast. I was struck by how none of you could remember your first impression of the movie. I saw the Big Lebowski in the theater, and it had a profound impact on me. These characters were larger-than-life caricatures of people I knew, of people everyone knows. Even if the plot was a jumble the first time through, and the dream sequences were gimmicky, there was so much truth to the movie that I had to come back for more. And when you do come back, the thing that really gets under your skin is the underlying message of perspective. We see one character after another with wildly different values thrown against each other. And the result is absurdity. Nobody has the right perspective. Nobody has the answers. And the dude's philosophy starts to make a lot of sense. In a way, learning to empathize with the dude is a lot like a reset button on all the hang-ups you've had driven into you by other people. Parents, peers, cultural leaders, the media. The movie makes an assertion that it's all noise. Nothing is absolute. Nothing is more than, like, your opinion, man. If the narrator sums it up at the end, the human condition is a comedic cycle, so we might as well just chill the fuck out and enjoy the ride. I think that the people who don't get the Big Lebowski might be so deep in their own beliefs that they can't see them for what they are. Beliefs. What do you think? Amen, bro. Man, this guy needs Sounds his like own YouTube channel. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a nice voice. Yeah. I think that was very well said. Yeah, I feel like my spirit movies for 2019 are The Big Lebowski and Philomena for similar reasons, for basically what he said. I've mm. never seen Philomena. Philomena's wonderful. I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't remember what what like the cathartic there's like a part was. where uh basically oh, she so says good. like you know yeah you might be right but i don't want to live my life angry so fuck you yeah it's <laughs> like fuck it up yeah it's like whatever yeah exactly <laughs> let's go bowling yeah so fuck it let's go bowling. right yeah hmm. so anyway yeah that was a great email totally agree on everything he said that was a voice it was a voicemail you're right all right what do we got next i think we got one austin do you have anything to add to that i concur all right kai bring it kai Hey guys, this is Kai calling for the Show Me the Meme podcast in reference to Bandersnatch. I know you're sick of hearing about it, really. I'm super <laughs> sorry. But I wanted to reference something in relation to the episode for The Vampire's Kiss when a caller said that it was similar to Roy, in a way. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think about the idea that if we do live in a simulation, the question of who is simulating everyone immediately jumped into my mind. I don't know if there's really a weight to that in relation to, in Bandersnatch, Snatch, you know you're controlling Stefan, but it doesn't answer if he's in the simulation, then who's controlling Colin, and who controls his dad, and who controls his mom, and even if we are avatars of greater players, why they would choose to simulate everyone, and who gets to be the NPCs, and who gets to be the characters. It's just something I couldn't get out of my mind after he said it. I've been I'm sitting here at work, I've been thinking about it for a couple of hours now. I just wanted to let you guys know and see if you guys had anything to say about it. All right, have a good one. Sorry to ruin your uh, weekend, yeah. man. <laughs> Ryan, I know Shit. that I know that you I believe. Help. I know you believe we're living in a simulation. So, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I I I I too had a moment where I thought about it for several hours when they go, "Oh my god," you know, like uh, uh, I mean, I don't have anything other to say than just. Strap in and enjoy the simulation, man. Luckily, the only thing I can say is, luckily, we don't like you know, like, oh god, glitch like, out. We don't glitch out. You don't and, know like, if you don't glitch out. What if well, you glitch out? It just like, goes I, back. I've never we don't, felt we don't like it. somebody trying to move my hand and exactly. I've been resisting it. It's like very Stephen. good technology. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. At least in our simulation, it's better technology. Yeah, right. We, we're in a version. Yeah, that was in the 80s, man. This really, you've more, never more desired a coke, and then afterwards, you've been like, whoa, why do I want a coke right now? And you realize that it was just like some hot person on a. Oh, it's the hummus, sunny, dude. No. Like, yeah, black, your hummus blackouts. You know? Like yeah. in the Matrix glitches. This is from Heidi. Let's see. Hit it, Heidi. Hey, 
Heidi. I just wanted to share a quick take on vampires kiss and I'll try to keep it short. Um, so my take is that Peter was actually bitten by the bat and developed rabies, which could explain a lot of his symptoms. So I think his medical symptoms combined with his psychology to develop this elaborate fantasy that was basically a reflection of his deepest desires and fears. So I do think he's a very dangerous character, like in many of the ways that you talked about, but I also see a tragic element and that if he did have rabies or even if he was just having a psychotic break, he was quite sick and needed medical treatment, but no one was around to help him because he basically had shut out or abused anyone who might have cared in his life. So just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Okay. Thank you. Hi Vampire's Kiss yeah, thank is a you, goddamn Heidi. American tragedy. See, that's what I'm talking about, you know? It's funny that it, we, someone had said last time that, like, you know, what's great about Vampire's Kiss, or what I think Nicolas Cage in the commentary said, you know, I like to keep movies up to interpretation. And I think that that's, I love that too, but it doesn't always work. You know, like, uh, what I think my pick for worst movie ever made is the movie Southland Tales, and certainly that is up for, that's up for interpretation, but you have to make the audience want to think about it, and I think Heidi's interpretation, which I hadn't even thought of, which on, on a literal level makes a whole lot of sense and I really like it, it's just a reflection of how I think this movie is just so damn interesting and so fucking rewarding the more times you watch it, because it's hilarious, it's thoughtful on a level, and it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I like movie, you know, because uh, it is very ambiguous whether he was a vampire or not, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And it's on purpose, obviously. But I like, and and sometimes I don't like that. Sometimes I'm like, I want Just there to be me. a definitive fucking answer. But 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 when it really does work, when it really at the end of the day doesn't matter. You know, it, it does matter, but either way, it's funny. Either way, it works. If he was a vampire, then that's a whole story in your head. If he, if he wasn't a vampire, then you get that movie in your head, and it, it's still a great movie. And we still either have way. that sound effect. Oh, I guess we're not plugged oh, in, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Sorry, a vampire. We're not in. All right, I got one more. I, I would also say another uh, a movie that doesn't work uh, in terms of being open for interpretation or just too ambiguous is knowing nick cage is knowing have you guys seen this movie Wait, i don't think that movie's ambiguous at all you've seen that movie i've seen it. i saw it recently okay well it's unambiguous but at the same time it has a million questions at the end when does uh, it uh, the, the, what I happened at the end of that movie uh, uh all right well spoilers. that's for a different podcast yeah, different podcast all right this uh next one comes from i think ethan let's go ethan hey there wisecrack this is ethan from pennsylvania uh Wondering what you guys thought of that in the context of the episode, you know, between the choosing between the binary choices and not really being able to um, abstain from the choice um, and that kind of application to uh, our consumer society of, you know, choosing between two cereals and not really having an option to abstain from that other than just not having cereal. Uh, but, yeah, let me know what you guys think. That sounds like there up your go. alley, Austin. Yeah, so it was really interesting. I actually watched this again with a friend just the other night. And yeah. um, which was a totally different experience than the first two times I had played slash watched it. But the, one of the things that I picked up on in my first couple of viewings, but that really struck me with the last one, is the bit where you have an option to choose how you want to reveal yourself to him, either as the symbol or as Netflix. And if you choose Netflix, there's like this explanation that's trying to communicate with him. And one of the things that it says is it's like TV but online. And I almost feel like there's a criticism. And we, I think we briefly touched on this. I don't know. I talked about this now with multiple people in different locations. So I don't remember what I said where, so forgive me. But um, it's almost like it's Charlie Brooker's making a, uh, a criticism about Netflix 
as a platform in the way that where TV used to kind of like give you something, but now the choice is yours. It's all about you. It's you, you, you. And we already live in this sort of like narcissistic, personalized society where you can create a an iced, non-fat, sugar-free, no foam, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you wouldn't have iced foam, but whatever. You know what I mean? Like this construction where everything is so personalized. It's so much about what you want to do to create your own personalized commodity, make you feel like you have control, but really you don't have control because the options are still given to you. And so it's this insidious way of sort of like programming us to kind of make us force ourselves to choose from within this array of options by giving the illusion of free choice. And I think that's something that's so interesting. And I feel like even Netflix as a platform is being criticized by this film or by this game film as well, because Netflix itself is part of that same sort of systemic tendency. Are you sure you didn't get that point from a from an emailer? Because we got an email from Alexander who says essentially that. I mean, says, I've, I've said that because I, I did like I did a, an episode, like a bonus episode on Owls at Dawn. And then on my other movie podcast, we also did Bandersnatch. And I said it in one of them as well, because that's one of the things that I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. So Alexander says uh, the days of simply <laughs> browsing through Blockbuster and picking out what to watch on a whim are over. The movies and shows on Netflix on your homepage are displayed according to a according to a highly specific algorithm designed to point you toward what Netflix wants you to watch, thus only giving you the illusion of choice. Netflix even came under criticism for allegedly using a viewer's race to determine what movie poster to display, seemingly go as, going as far as to misrepresent a movie as more prominently featuring, featuring black actors than it actually did. Mm. So, uh... By making Netflix a legitimate part of Bandersnatch, Brooker seems to be subtly pointing out that if our illusion of free will is present even within Netflix, then this illusion must permeate through the rest of our lives as well. What do you guys think? Is this a valid reading or am I being too meta? Well, first off, Alexander, you don't get too meta on this part. So (laughs) in, in economics, like public choice theory and social choice theory are two schools of thought that have dominated kind of neoclassical or marginalist. Uh, interpretations of economics over the past hundred years, let's say. Um, But like it got really, really, really popular in, let's say, the 80s where people would run these focus groups and focus groups would then sort of be the litmus test that would allow marketers to help governments and other corporations with their advertising or with the way that they would present a bill or a policy to the public through the media. And so basically, I think what this person is talking about is basically public choice on fucking steroids, where now algorithms are very precise, but also so fast and so ubiquitous with being able to kind of utilize the tools of big data or datafication because everything is data information that it's kind of like this rather than asking me how uh, I in respond to the color of a new Cheetos bag or something like that it's sort of just extracting it immediately so it's basically that kind of focus group logic but ramped up to 11 and and technology at scale especially online technology allows for that like the whole like optimization of the uh, of the exploitation of your mind you know you can you can do that at such a large scale and so quickly and mm. so um, precisely that it see on on some fronts it becomes like you know it, it becomes optimistic and kind of nice and you can you know make sure you have the best converting website for your you know sh- your your mom's website that sells whatever cups or whatever it's awesome but down the line yeah mm. it just gets to this hyper this hyper optimized place uh, yeah if you guys like thinking about this I really recommend there's a great youtuber uh, braincraft Vanessa Hill she has a six-part documentary called attention Wars that's 
basically probably the best thing on YouTube. That's it. It's referred to as the attention economy in economic circles. So yeah, I would throw a wet blanket on this whole concept and just say that you know. Like, uh, uh, I don't feel like I have an illusion of choice whenever I'm on Netflix because you all you make the the first choice that you make when you're on Netflix is all right. I'm picking stuff that's on Netflix already, you know. So who? Yeah, who cares? Well, even I, th- though I, think, I, pick, I think Bird Box is a feel, great I, example of this. Like when when ultimately, I think it's a great thing. Is all I mean to say. No, no. <laughs> Go, well, go I'm, ahead. I'm yeah. just saying, I think Bird Box is, first of all, I, look, there's a, Netflix is making content, so already you're kind of selecting, I want Netflix's content, or uh-huh. I want NBC's content, or whatever, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not criticizing, but I think, like, the reading that, that, uh, this, this, this Matt, guy, uh, is it Matt? whoever, no, it's Alexander, Alexander's, and, and, uh, and, um, and Austin are kind of pointing to, it's interesting, like, Bird Box is a, Interesting case study. They got forty-two or forty-six million people to watch it because so they, they could. Say. So, so they say, says. right? Which I, I I think they'd be in some heat if that wasn't accurate. But who knows, right? But mm-hmm. anyway, they're able to like take over every homepage and take over every login and take over billboards that they own. And they're just trying to see like what's our power to control choice if we want to use it at any moment. If we use every and that's look, everyone has that kind of reach, including Amazon. That homepage is super valuable real estate or Google's homepage. But like, if they want to use that, can they control the choice of what you watch? And it's promotion. I'm not saying that it's like full manipulation, but it's an, it's interesting to see that hey, they could get and convince 46 million people or 42 million people to watch a movie that most sucks. people say sucks. You know, so well, right? But but, there, but it, it, you say it sucks a lot. A lot of people like that movie. You know, yeah, and, I haven't. And my I brother haven't personally met one. Okay, well, I've I, I, I met, met a few people that liked it, but 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 basically, yeah. If you're saying that they're that there's taking every they're scientifically finding out every the the few elements that will they can all put into a box and make you know this amazing product. To me, that's on us if we all you know 42 million people are 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 are. You say manipulated. I would just say, you know, they, they, they made something it. that everyone likes. They made Coca Cola. You know, but the thing no, is, no one liked it. They no felt manipulated to watch it. Yeah, they felt I mean, forced you, to watch they it. Didn't, you, you no, they click, did not. You click out of curiosity. I mean, it's the same right. thing with YouTube. I mean, you don't. But, but, but it has nothing but, to do with whether you like the product or not. Right. But 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 I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Austin. But your take is that you know that that this kind of hyper amount of choices where they're using algorithms to figure out what the masses likes and then making those those products is kind of a bad thing. And I would say that it's just a machine baby, you know, and it exists <laughs> in the same world. The most... It exa- exists in the same world that really awesome independent shit is getting made too, you know, so we can have yeah. it all. That's 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 completely and true. People I'm, are making saying... human beings are making their own choices. You know, I'm not being manipulated. <laughs> I thought you by said you were in a simulation. I, 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 don't, <laughs> I swear, I swear, <laughs> I am I am saying these words. Yes. I'm choosing to say I these words. Me, I am that Ryan. sounds exactly like what the simulation would want you to say. God, exactly. Fucking yeah. oh, damn no, it! You've been compromised, Ryan. <laughs> All right. Whole, yeah. Anyways. I was actually going to bring in one more email about walkabout, but I feel like we're already too heated to, to, <laughs> yeah. to, to, to get back to the, the lower level of Nicholas Rogue. Uh, all right. So I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. So wrap it up. What the last two remaining movies are for Nicholas Cage month is in the hand of our patrons. So patrons, please, please vote for adaptation. Make it adaptation. Make it uh, bad, bad Lieutenant Two. What else? Or walkabout. Or make it raising. Make it raising. Wild at Heart. I would do. <laughs> make I would, a Wild at Heart. I would like to see Leaving Las Vegas again. That, that movie too. affected me in a very uh, unique way. That's but a so downer, depressing, man. dude. It's definitely it's, a downer. It's great. Don't get me wrong, but adaptation is fun. Moonstruck would be cool. Yeah, Moonstruck's that's on there. there. Peggy Sue got married. Eh, that's not that's on. That's not there. on there. Yeah, it's it should be further on the list. You're right. Knowing honestly, honestly, would be really fun to talk. I think that would be fun. Yeah. 
I would, I would be totally down if that was on there. And you can re-listen to Mandy. You can re-listen. To, you can re-watch the movie, but you can re-listen yeah. to the podcast on Mandy. Con Air or Nick Cage. Con Air was Con Air on the list. The Rock. Uh, the it Rock is on the list. The I Rock vote is for. Not. I vote for write-ins on uh, Matchstick Men, please. That is a good yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I, I regret, really I regret not remembering that one. Anyway, so where can we find you guys on the internet, Ryan? Um, I, I have a, a my own website or my own page called Ryan Shorts. Release videos there every week. M- made one today called Harmonizing with Myself. It's me and three versions of myself all singing <laughs> together. Um, nice. Go check that one out. And Ryan's game show. Yeah, Ryan's game show and Ryan Shorts are are freaking awesome. Oh, the man. best. Wisecrack's awesome. Oh, I love you. No, no, you're awesome. No. And oh, where can we find you, Jacob? Well, I, oh, on Wisecrack. On Wisecrack. How about I love you, that Austin? <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore Hayden. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. And after a short hiatus, my other movie podcast that I do with a director friend of mine from London. Uh, well, in London, I guess I should say. He's kind of multicultural. Um, but it's called I Dig This Movie. So you can check that shit out. And uh, the first film that we covered of the year is Point Motherfucking Break. Ooh. Oh, oh, hell man. yeah. Nice. Killer waves, man. All right, Very signing nice. off from... Actually, you do it. Yeah. Hold on, wait. I I, I did uh, save a few uh, uh, comments. That's oh, cool. Man. Um, uh, from the comments Literally, section. wait until the last second. That's cool. Let's do it. Uh, sorry, I did fuck this. Uh, oh, Fozzie Bear said, The 90s stereotype of a dad was a guy who was competent at work but incompetent at home. <laughs> and that part was paint by numbers for the mm. era. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of cool. So mm. he must protect his competence at home because that's the real threat because who gives a shit if there's a bomb about to blow up the world that's not that's not as compelling of a conflict in the 90s i like that um all right that i can't find the rest anyway, all right all right goodbye from hollywood california peace guys bye bye have a good night everybody